Welcome back to the Leadership Locker. This is Rich Cardona. This is a throwback to when I interviewed Lindsay McGregor, who her and her partner Neil have a business called The Vega Factor in New York City, in which they help companies transform their work cultures. The thing is, everyone does that, right? I mean, it's not super exciting. There's plenty of people telling you how you could do this, how you can improve morale, all these different things. But they use a science called total motivation, and Lindsay walks through it. And when you listen to her, everything she says is just wildly believable and it's because she's tested it and they've tested it uh, they both have backgrounds with mckinsey and they both just want people to understand what is going to be the driver uh, in order for them to be primed to perform at work but more importantly as an entrepreneur like me uh, this is so we can get a good feel of how we can help ensure that we are providing an environment that's conducive to the success of the people who are joining our teams whether they're contractors part-time or full-time employees that's what we want so please enjoy this podcast very much uh, it is sponsored by rich cardona media where we make sure that you are able to realize your value through the visibility of video content specifically on LinkedIn where we just crush it for our clients. And we do so by filming, editing, and distributing the content for them because they don't have time. I don't have time. Please enjoy the episode. Subscribe if you want some awesome business advice from some of the top people out there. Tons of great guests on the podcast. Subscribe, review it, rate it, and enjoy this episode. Uh, please tell me, tell everyone who you are and where we are and what it is that you do. Yeah, so my name is Lindsay McGregor. I'm the author of Prime to Perform mm -hmm. um, and a co-founder and CEO of Vega Factor, mm -hmm. which is an organization that helps bring the cutting edge of psychology to organizations. Mm -hmm. How do you build the highest levels of performance? How do you build a business case around a great operating model and culture that inspires people to do their best work? So Forrest and I were talking and he says that you are a perfect blend of EQ and IQ. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, and then when he talked about how, so someone like me looks at EQ as very important. I look at leadership involves a certain amount of having skin in the game with your people, understanding them, knowing about their families, knowing what makes them tick. But there also is a scientific side to it, which you explored, which is very counterintuitive to people like me. I, I would be like kind of avoiding it, like, oh no, data and all this other stuff. So what gave you the idea? How did that even happen where you kind of merged the two? Because that is certainly a model that uh, I haven't seen, which is really exciting. Yeah, I had always wanted, I'd always cared deeply about the people that I worked with. Um, but one of my first um, projects in the workforce was to figure out how do you take a group of hundreds of people mm -hmm. and make them really high performing? Mm -hmm. And could you measure that on purpose? And you would walk into these giant call centers that had hundreds of people looking like robots, and it was completely soul-destroying. Yeah. And you knew that the answer in that with hundreds of people wasn't the same as if you're talking just to your best friend, yeah. right? You couldn't just take everybody out to pizza um, and ask them pizza about their does, hopes and dreams. <laughs> exactly. Like, I, 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 I just have to say that because I'm like, yeah. how many times can we buy them lunch? Yeah. Like, it's not enough. Exactly. The motivational posters are definitely not going to yeah. work, right? So what do you do at the scale? Because um, every leader that I met individually at that company was personal, interpersonally nice, yes. but at the scale of hundreds of people, it fell apart. And it felt a little bit like 
the, if you had two circles, one being nice and one being impactful, it was very hard for leaders to figure out how, where do you get the overlap? Yep. Can you actually do that? And so we started testing a lot of different theories from psychology to understand what creates high levels of performance and high levels of motivation mm -hmm. and found that there was one approach that really, really worked. Mm -hmm. And it all came down to understanding that why people work determines how well they work. Yeah. So their reason for doing something is going to shape what they do. Yes. And there's this really interesting spectrum of motives that is the first place I now ever start with mm -hmm. a team or with an entire organization, mm -hmm. understanding what whys is their organization driving. And if you alter those whys, you can alter their business performance. So I've done, I've done this. I've had 500 associates yeah. at, at a point um, and, you know, during peak season and there was a, a couple times where we just performed, outperformed the network like mm -hmm. completely. And I was asked to write something about it. What are the systems? What are the processes? I'm like, nothing. Like I talked to them. I, I talked to them about how important this is that, you know, maybe they're going to be in hour eight of doing this out of hour 10, but that package might end up, might be an order from one of their cousins or something mm -hmm. like that. The other thing I think is that, teaching people about the business so they're not a robot and just coming in to do the same thing uh, you know kind of giving them the why is really important now you mentioned the challenge of trying to have the impact on so many people uh, like still what is the foundational piece where you could get everyone on board because everyone's motives across that whole spectrum of people are going to be very different so how do you kind of collaborate it or, or just collect it to where you have one unique kind of North Star. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you were intuitively pulling on mm -hmm. what motivates people. Mm -hmm. um, there's a spectrum of reasons why people work, and it ranges from when you work because you care about the work itself to you're working for reasons that are completely disconnected yes. from the work. So we'll combine that into the, the motive spectrum. So the most powerful motive um, is when you're is, uh, called play. Mm -hmm. And it's when you're working simply because you care about the work itself. Mm -hmm. You're finding enjoyment and engagement. Mm -hmm. So when you're saying that you didn't want to treat people like robots, you wanted to help them understand the business, yeah. my guess is you were really encouraging play by think having them experiment. Mm -hmm. Like, what could I do differently if I did something this way? Would it work faster? Oh, that's interesting. That's not working. How do I change it? Yep. You're creating real engagement for the activity that they're doing day to day. Sure. Um, the second motive is purpose. And this is when you care about the impact of your work. And my get, what most organizations get wrong is they have the grand mission statement up on the wall, but most people feel like, you know, if I don't show up today, nobody's going to care, right? I'm easily replaceable. Exactly. Especially if it's a thriving company. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so purpose is how do you make each person feel like each hour they're at work matters? Mm -hmm. And when you were giving them the analogy of imagine this package is going to your cousin, Right? That's something that really makes you feel like you're doing something for another human being. Yeah. Like you matter. Interesting. Um, yeah, there's a few more. Yeah, I'd love yeah, to share oh, them. Sorry, sorry, uh, there's play, there's purpose, there's potential, mm -hmm. which is when you're working for some second order outcome of the work. Mm -hmm. Like um, you're, usually the job is a good stepping stone. Mm -hmm. So maybe um, this job, you want to be a team leader one day mm -hmm. and you know this job is going to train you to get there. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> play, purpose, potential all increase great adaptive performance and motivation. 
But there's a set of motives why people that actually decrease performance that we use a lot in organizations and in our personal lives. Yep. Um, so the first is when you're is um, using emotional pressure. So I don't know if you've ever tried to guilt a loved one into doing something. Never, Maybe. never, right? <laughs> uh, but this is using guilt, shame, FOMO, right? Mm -hmm. Fear of missing out, peer pressure mm -hmm. to get somebody to do something. Mm -hmm. um, the next along the spectrum is economic pressure. And this is when you're trying to force somebody to do something by through a stick or a carrot, mm -hmm. saying you must do this for the reward or to avoid the punishment. Yep. And finally is inertia. And this is when you ask somebody, you know, why are you doing that? And they say, I have no idea. I've just been doing this over and over and over again. I can't explain it to you. Wow. And you can measure, you know, how much play purpose potential people feel, how much emotional pressure, economic pressure and inertia they feel. And these motives are so consistent around the world, you can boil them down into a single concept, which we call total motivation or TOMO for short. Mm -hmm. And when you have a high TOMO team, people not only feel, can feel the energy and the passion and the motivation, but it also, you can change the TOMO of a team and impact numbers like sales or mm -hmm. customer experience um, and create a real business case around it. That mm -hmm. means that a company doesn't have to make this decision because it's the moral thing to do mm -hmm. or it's the good thing to do for your people they can actually say this is worth the investment um, it's going to make us more um, it's going to make us a stronger company and I can show you the sales numbers and the customer experience numbers as a result but when the company puts pressure on senior leaders mm -hmm. to make this quarter needs to be we need plus this percent yeah. we have productivity we want to be number one in the network or you know obviously you're always looking at your competition when leaders adopt an economic or numbers-based perspective, how can they temper that to go for it, but without mm. sending the pressure down because it goes in waves and, and you will actually probably ruin your chances of hitting your goals. Yeah. So what's your take on that? Um, the, it's a great, great question and something a lot of leaders struggle with. Um, and my guess is your experience in the military, you have a lot of examples of this <laughs> where you have incredibly high stakes, right? You, you, I mean, you literally have lives on the line. You um, have to hit certain outcomes. You have to deliver on those outcomes. And um, the way that you can interpret that as a team is in two different ways. One is you can interpret that as um, economic pressure. You can, your leader can say, you must hit this, otherwise we're gonna be punished, yeah. we're gonna be ashamed, um, no, no excuses, you can use it in a very aggressive way, or you can use it in a super high purpose way. Mm -hmm. If we accomplish these goals, then we're gonna be doing what's right for our customers, mm -hmm. we're gonna be doing living up to our, our best selves, mm -hmm. we're gonna be reaching our true potential. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing about TOMO that means that you shouldn't have really high and aggressive aspirations. Mm -hmm. It just means it's really important to think through why you're striving for those aspirations and to make sure you're communicating that in a way that's really going to inspire people. Mm -hmm. So for example, we worked with a bunch of retail stores where we took four stores and transformed the motives of the, of the um, associates in those stores. And they're, um, the, um, one of the things that we changed was their weekly sales calls. Hmm. So in the way they used to do the sales calls is they'd pull open their report and the leader would say, you know, 
why are you worse than your neighboring store on this one? Oh. What's wrong with this one? What's wrong with this <laughs> one? Right? And it was just shame. Everybody hated it. You felt so bad. You were, it was awful. And the way we shifted the call was around play, purpose, and potential. So play was, you know, we know that the big challenge, the big aspirations we have are to improve the health of everybody in our community, mm -hmm. to increase our efficiency so that we can reduce costs and to do something else. Yep. A couple of those. And then what are they thought went through the data and said, what can we learn from the data last week? And what experiments do we want to run next week to improve what's most important to us? Mm -hmm. So it shifted from, from shame and blame mm -hmm. to learning and purpose. Yep. And it was subtle. It was in the language and the conversations and the outcomes. It makes a huge difference to the amount of stress that you feel when you're approaching yep. something like that. And it made every single associate a true owner of their results. They now cared about it as yep. opposed to the reason I'm doing this is because I don't want to get yelled at by Rich on Monday. Completely. Yeah. Um, the experiential or experimental part, uh, that, that leads me to a, another really important question before we switch gears, and that is you, you evaluate the data, you, you, you look at everything collectively, and you say to yourself, okay, th this is now a pattern, we need to do something. In my experience, I see a lot of knee-jerk reactions, mm -hmm. um, like we need to do this now. And I, I mean, it was, it was very normal for senior leaders come out of a meeting and then they'd all go to their respective managers and be like, this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a why behind it. I could feel the stress behind it and everything else. When it comes to experimenting with potential solutions, mm -hmm. why do you think the knee-jerk reaction is followed by another knee-jerk reaction, meaning this isn't working, you know, I expected a fix in two days. Like you can't go to the gym if you don't have a six pack and work out and go look in the mirror when you get home and be like, yeah. where is it? Uh, but I feel like we jump and jump and jump and jump. Um, mm -hmm. What is your guidance for experimenting and how long it should take yeah. and how long you need to reevaluate your ideas to fix it? Yeah, um, well, in this situation, these retail stores within just around eight months mm -hmm. were able to have about triple the profitability and triple the um, customer service numbers and wow. triple the cross sales of a set of similar stores. And so that was in a very short amount of time. Wow. The organization started to think about play and purpose and potential mm -hmm. because they thought it was a nice thing to do or would help their recruiting, right? <laughs> and they kind of believed us that it would increase their results, but they wouldn't really believe us, right? And then after eight months, they realized that this was the most profitable initiative they had ever invested in. Right. So, mm -hmm. but you're right. That was an eight, that was eight months, mm -hmm. but it does, it's not, you can change something in one day for a team. But what we find is with experimentation, a lot of the experiments that organizations come up with are like big projects that will take tons of time and a brand new team. And it's mm -hmm. got a thousand point checklist and, you know, they bake these huge plans. Mm -hmm. And the way we find that experimentation really boosts performance is to start them really, really small. Yep. Say like, what's the thing you can do differently on the floor today? Yep. What's the different question you can ask the customer? Mm -hmm. It's creating a learning goal, like test three new ways to welcome a customer into this store yeah. and share those experiments with each so other. So at the heart of it, what we find is that Tomo really increases adaptive performance, which mm -hmm. is every single individual feels like they're learning something new. Yes. And then every individual is scaling that to the rest of the organization once they learn it. How do you encourage them to have the patience, not just in you, but in the yeah. process so they're actually bought in, yeah. not for the quick fix? When we teach people about 
um, Tomo and its impact on performance, we almost always teach it in ways that they can personally connect to in their personal lives. Nice. So we ask people to take these concepts and experiment with them like tonight over dinner. Mm -hmm. Like go home to one, the CFO of a big organization said to us that she went home after hear, learning about Tomo. Um, she's the CFO of a bank and um, was having dinner with her daughter. And her daughter asked her, you know, said, why are you going on this business trip tomorrow, mom? Like, I really wish you weren't going on this trip. Oh, <laughs> and her normal response would have been um, sort of anger. Like, how else do you think you get food on this table, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I'm do this for you. <laughs> and she took a deep breath yeah. and she thought about what's the play and purpose for this reason. And she explained to her daughter that one, she actually really enjoyed her job and it did a lot of good for people in the world to help them give access so that they could um, build homes, afford the schools they wanted to go to, um, and build the lives that they wanted to, to live. Mm -hmm. And it created this completely different conversation with her daughter about what they believe in and what their morals are and what their values are. And she could just feel the huge difference in that moment. Wow. Um, we had another um, head of operations who actually had, did a similar experiment with his son where he realized that the entire way he was trying to get his kids to get good grades was through sticks and carrots. And um, within just a couple months of changing, you know, or of changing how he talked about his, his, the grades with his kid, suddenly his teenager, who completely stonewalled him, was being really open about his learning journey and what he was finding at school and what he was struggling with. So I would say, like, try experimenting with how you're convincing your significant other to go to brunch with you and your friends this yep. weekend, and uh, you'll start to see the, the results. The people making things happen and why you even are doing what you're doing. So uh, if I remember correctly at the beginning, you said you had to, you were in a position where you had to try and influence a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, where was that? And then how did things start changing in your head as far as the approach? Um, so we were in a big call center mm -hmm. and um, we were starting, actually starting a new media business. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be really interesting and exciting. We were going to help. Supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> we were going to help, you know, we were going to help small businesses access the internet and it was going to be amazing. Yeah. And um, within a couple of months, a huge portion of the sales force had quit. Um, and we realized that we had put into place all of these super high pressure systems to, you know, call monitoring, sitting next. We were essentially the evil guys in office space, yes. you know, <laughs> and creating so much stress and fear because we thought it would get performance faster, mm -hmm. but it had the complete opposite effect of what we wanted. I, and I'm going to interrupt a lot yeah. on this portion, but yeah. you say we, like you too, like, yeah, like tell I mean, me some of your behaviors that you look back and you're like, God, like what was I doing? So, I mean, even just, um, you would, I mean, one of my jobs was to look at the reports every week. And so the way that we would read out the reports would be, um, you know, we were supposed to get 10 sales and we got two. What's wrong? Like yeah. try harder. Yeah. Um, as opposed to building this really fun collaborative problem solving process of, wow, this is interesting. Like we expected 10, we got two, like, let's dig in. What experiments could we run? What could we go do differently? What do we think is happening? Let's problem solve together. Let me be a support and a coach as opposed to just the person that's waving bad news in your face. Yeah. Um, and when, um, so to me, it felt like I was not able that sure, I could be a nice person 
during coffee or over lunch, but at scale it wasn't working. It was even the same thing with um, with smaller teams. Like if I was leading, I w there was a five-person team that I led, mm -hmm. and I would walk in on Monday morning and ask people, how was your weekend, and be all nice, and we'd have a fun conversation, yep. and then I'd say, you know, call me if you need help, because what I thought people wanted was tons of autonomy, yes. like lots of space, and of course if there's an emergency I'll help out, yep. but otherwise be on your own. And when we measured the motives of people who have really hands-off leaders like that, it's almost as bad as people who have leaders that yell at them. Yep. Um, because it actually, it, you actually feel like this person isn't investing yep. in, you're not learn, you're not, your play isn't going up because you're not learning, your purpose isn't going up because they're not helping you see the impact of your work, your potential isn't going up because you don't feel like you're advancing in, your, in what you can do. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, it was, you know, I knew enough not to be toxic. Everybody would have left that project and said, yeah, we were a nice group, we're all friends, but we, did we do the best work of our lives? Mm -hmm. No. Like, did I feel like um, that was one of the most incredible work experiences I've ever had? No. And that's what I wanted to figure out how to yeah. do. Um, so I, I resonate with what you said because people want to be led, you know, mm -hmm. like, there's a very fine line between being hands-off and being perceived as completely disinterested, like just like in the Marine Corps, we always used to say, just shut up in color, you know, like yeah. just, just, just do what you're here to do, be on time, don't be late and everything mm -hmm. will be okay. Uh, but that resonates with me a lot. So, so when you're, when you were able to kind of be a little bit more self-aware, how did you decide? this is what I'm going to do, this is how I'm going to do it, and how scared were you? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Um, so once we had uh, really got, I remember sitting down on a Saturday night um, with my co-author, Neil, mm -hmm. um, who's also my husband, mm -hmm. uh, so that, and going through all of the data around, um, we had gotten back this data set of total motivation in 50 major companies wow. around the world. How, how did you, how did you even get that? So yeah. tell me how you reached out to companies like, hey, can you do this thing? Yeah. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to do this thing and I need you to do this so I could do more. Yeah. How did you even do that? It was a market research project. So we hired a market research firm yeah. to like go walk around. You know, they like walk around parking lots and shopping malls and, you know, interview people about yeah, where they yeah, work yeah. and why they work. Um, and we got all this data back and we were putting it, you know, we're, we're analyzing it all. And um, we were looking at some of the relationships between why people came to work mm -hmm. and customer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And we were getting just these straight line correlations and it was jaw dropping. We had to do it three times over to make sure that we weren't doing it wrong. And, and then we started doing our first experiments in stores to see if we could actually cause the difference on purpose, if we could actually change somebody's motives. And once we had cracked the code, I was like, oh, this is so amazing. I yes. have to share this knowledge. Yes. So I wrote um, a, like a three-page article about all the research and submitted it um, to the Harvard Business Review. Nice. And um, they're like, eh, like it's not really very good. It's <laughs> so like, what? Yeah. And so um, I was like, well, if they don't like my three-page article, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a 300-page book. <laughs> very logical, right? Yeah. yeah. I want to uh, stop right there. <laughs> Tell me, so you, you looked at that problem yeah. as it not being accepted as, well, I'll show yeah. you or I'm going to do this. Um, but that's not normal. A lot of people would be like, I had this amazing data. I thought I just, you know, 
created the new, the next big thing, and I got shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you're submitting something to HBR. Um, how did you, or what advice would you give to people who do what you did and yeah. do not immediately think like, I'm not going to stop. That means I got to do this. Like, how did you have your composure to, to yeah. con- continue to drive on? I've learned, I think at that point I'd learned there's a huge difference between um, the no- what the knowledge is and how you communicate it. Mm-hmm. And so my assumption was we just hadn't communicated it pr- properly enough yet. And I think one of the pieces that probably isn't obvious in writing the book is that in the process of writing it, you're trying to explain your thinking and your theory hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of time <laughs> to people that you're interviewing, to um, test audiences, to test readers. And so there's hundreds of, for every page in the book, there's like five versions of it in the trash can. Um, it's how do you explain this in a way that's going to really resonate with people and feel so intuitive, but at the same time, really new and different. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it was a challenge of, you know, we know that the date that the, the data um, is incredible. But let's just go through lots of iterations until I can actually speak in a way that's worthy of that data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so you decided to write the book, um, and tell me how that was. So, from an article to a book is a completely different undertaking, yeah. obviously, and. How long did it take you yeah. to get from, you know, talking to a publisher yeah. to having the idea to finishing? Like, walk me through writing a book because yeah. everyone wants to write a book. Yeah. Everyone's like, I'm going to write a book one day. <laughs> but like, you've done it, so yeah. what's it like? So I thought it was going to take three months, and it took two years. <laughs> yeah. I think naive, being naive was a blessing. Yeah. Um, and the it's a really long process. You don't realize that. Um, as you put together a nonfiction book, you're really not only just proving can you write something entertaining, but you have to really think about is there a market out there for it and write the business case for it. Um, And in those, um, if I was going to start again, what I would actually do is say, all of it should have been blog posts, right? Just get much more user feedback and much more testing along the way, and then at the end, collate that into your book. Um, But start with a much more frequent way of interacting with people, whether that's your blog posts or videos like this or things Uh, like that. So when you decided to write a book and you had your co-author, which is your husband, uh, number one, well, with the book and the business, how is that dynamic? there's so many opinions on family and business. <laughs> yeah. There's probably much stronger opinions on husband and wife business, you know, yeah. type thing. How is that uh, for you? Uh, you know, is it, is it, I mean, you clearly complement each other, but mm. is there parts where you're just like, you know what, like, forget it. <laughs> this is not working. Uh, you know, it's it's been really amazing and pretty incredible, mm-hmm. The in a good way, fortunately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the... And I think it's a couple of things. One, when you're founding a business um, together, you're always looking for a business partner that's got similar values to you do. And so that is a really fundamental first Mm -hmm. piece that's actually really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, The second is that we both um, were trained really deeply in a process of solving problems together um, from our former consulting firm where we both worked. And what that had done was it completely depersonalized um, changing somebody's work. Mm-hmm. It taught us a very collaborative problem-solving process of, you know, for example, even in writing the book, like I would write one draft of a chapter, 
he'd take it, completely change it. I'd take it back, completely change it again. Where wow. you, you feel like what you're doing together is molding wet clay um, rather than criticizing each other's work or taking it personally. And when there's a very clear process that you know, you know, everything starts as a really rough draft, then it goes into a little bit um, tighter, a little tighter. You, it's, you just follow your problem solving process together rather than take it personally. Problem solving is, sticks out of my head as, as just the best business practice. You know, like can, can I solve problems? Can I be creative and innovative about it? What are some fundamental problem solving skills that you feel like people maybe overlook um, yeah. that could probably change their turnaround time, um, you know, as, as, as far as fixing something? Yeah. Um, it actually goes back to one of the core frameworks in Prime to Perform in the book, which is we think about any high performer has both tactical performance and adaptive performance. Mm -hmm. So tactical performance is your ability to stick to the plan. Mm -hmm. Do you have a strategy? Do you have a work plan with milestones? Do you have a personal to-do list? Mm -hmm. And adaptive performance is your ability to diverge from that plan. Mm -hmm. So when things go wrong or unexpected, can you pivot? Um, can you be creative, innovative, learn new things? Mm -hmm. My favorite way of thinking about tactical and adaptive is tactical is how well we've learned from the past. Mm -hmm. like, have you taken all of your past learnings and codified them so that you never make the same mistake twice. And adaptive performance is how well you're learning for the future. Are you continually inventing? And so in problem solving, a lot of what we um, have to define when we're working with our teams, with our, with our clients is where do you need the tactical and where do you need the adaptive? Where are we all going to follow the plan, the process, the way it's been codified? And where is it actually okay to play, experiment, adapt? Um, and it really changes how you understand um, thinking about your priorities as a team. Mm -hmm. um, and there's tons of problem-solving tools beneath that, but sure. that's been one of the most valuable personal lessons and leadership lessons is that you're, because these two things are opposite, the more tactical you have, the more you kill adaptive, mm -hmm. and vice versa, your job as a leader is to keep those two in balance yes. and constantly be thinking, where do I need one versus where do I need the other? All right, and that is a wrap. Uh, please let me know your thoughts on total motivation and the various different lanes she went down that can enhance not only the people who perform for us, but our performance for them, which to me is much more important and if you haven't yet subscribed to The Leadership Locker, please do so and connect with me. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn, Rich Cardona, video strategist. It's awesome uh, to just meet people there, network with people, and just look for opportunities. Take care. See you next week.